Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Many Happy Miles, a podcast that celebrates all type of forward movement. Whether you're going for an epic hike, a century ride, or your first brisk walk after, say, a boot on your foot, <laughs> we're here to say yay to it all and bring on guests to inspire you to move with joy. I'm Dimity McDowell, co-founder of Another Mother Runner. And I'm Sarah Wester Flynn, and I am saying yay to having some excellent performances at the County Track and Field Championships last night with my team that I coach. So that is so cool. So, yeah, yeah, so you know, I've never been a coach, although I, you know, I loved, I mean, I've been on a girls, girls on the run coach, but that's a different uh, kind of running coaching. That's more like, please, please run another lap. (laughs) When you like as a track coach, tell us about that, especially being at a meet that's a little bit, you know, that's towards, a pinnacle need, I guess. Well, they're very long. If anybody has <laughs> has had a kid who does track, I and mean, it's just there's so many events, and they have to get them all in. And so um, that's the one thing. This is indoor track, which is not competed across the country, but East Coast has it, Midwest has it, and so you're kind of in this area, this one track for let's say eight hours. And I just have a clipboard and I have the schedule events in front of me. I like to keep all the kids PRs in front of me too. So what they run, I know exactly like when they finish, if I can come over and say, oh my God, you just dropped six seconds or like, Hey, that was a okay effort. Cause I don't have all their times memorized in my head. And I spent a lot of time taking splits too. I was going to say, do you, do you wear a stopwatch around your neck? I do. You know, I go back and forth with my phone, which is kind of like a no, no and coaching. Like, I think, you really should have a stopwatch around your neck at all times. My phone tends to take better. I just feel like it takes better splits than the old school stopwatch, but I have both running. And last night I had a a freshman who is not running and he helped me with the splits and he did a great job. He was just a little quiet. So like, I couldn't hear him. So at one point I was like yelling, like, please be louder. Cause it's gets, it's just like, you know, when the kids are racing, it's so loud. And so I let then have to yell them at my athletes. Some of them, it's like like Charlie Brown teacher. And then some of them can hear me very clearly and want to hear the split. So I have to just make sure I shout them out, especially for a race like a 3200 where it's 16 laps. 
that oh tends gosh. to keep them on track. And so, so an indoor track is 200 meters. It's only 200 meters. Yeah. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 16 laps. Holy cow. All right. It is. All and, right. and as they were at the starting line last night and I was like, just like giving my kids a thumbs up before they race, the thought went through my head. Like I never want to do this again in my whole life. Like <laughs> you couldn't pay me to do an indoor two mile. I did it many times in high school and college and Hey, I just never liked it. Like true distance runners, I feel like lock into a pace and like it goes by fast because you're just clicking off these, you know, these intervals that are, but I just was like, oh, when is it going to say one lap to go? When's the bell lap? So it's it's interesting. And um, that's the trickiest race to really nail, I think, as an athlete, because it is all about pacing and not going out too hard. But yeah. I'm proud. We had a, a county champion, an individual county champion in a sprint event. One of our kids was a, a runner-up in two events and our 8 4 by 8 relay, which you know I'm a big fan of. I did that a lot in high school and college too. They got second, dropped a ton of time. So all things are looking good for marching towards our uh, regional and state championships. So, and nationals now we got, we got the full gamut ahead of us. Wow. All still indoor in the indoor season. All still indoor. Yeah. So it's, wow. I think for a coach, it's just emotionally draining. Obviously I'm just standing there. I'm not doing any running, but like I come home and I'm exhausted. Like, I just feel like I've run. I just feel like yeah. I was, I was going to ask you that because I mean, you know, I, it brings me back to the swim meet days, right. Mm-hmm. Where you're out in the sun. I mean, I realize you're an indoor track, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, six, seven hours and you haven't done anything except for eat, you know, a breakfast burrito and then to yep. eat all day long because you don't have anything else to do. No. And I don't even eat that. Like I have to force myself to like, go back to the stands, grab my snacks, sit down, have water and like, you know, whatever snack I brought. Because otherwise, like, it's like not nonstop action. So you really can be in there for hours without, you know, without even realizing. I keep saying that this one particular venue is like, it feels like a vacuum. It's like, I joke around and say, it's like Vegas. Like you're in a casino because like time just goes by. And I'm like, is it morning? Is it afternoon? Like, what time is it? And because like, I don't really see the sun and, you know, but um, it's fine. You know, (laughs) this is kind of the thick of it. And I'm just like tired thinking about going to practice now, but I do really enjoy it. You know, it's, this is a podcast for another day, but being a, a female coach is tough. I'm one of just like a few, I think in the state, you know, I wish I had someone like you or some other like-minded woman to like kind of identify with in the arena. Yeah. I have a lot of silly conversations with men and I just, you know, keep to myself a lot. So yeah, um, yeah, it's good. It's all good. The outcome was great last night. So I'm, I'm happy. Well, good. Well, you are blazing a trail, Sarah, and our guest today has blazed a trail herself. On today's episode of Many Happy Miles, we are thrilled to bring on Natalia Melman Petrozella, who is the author of the brand new book, Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. After first reading about this book in major publications like the Washington Post, Time Magazine, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, I was so excited and I know we had to bring her onto the podcast to talk about Fit Nation and her research, which centers around how fitness has become both inescapable and inaccessible in our country and her visions of creating a more inclusive, stronger future. Natalia is a historian of contemporary American politics and culture and a professor at the New School in New York City, where she helped to start a wellness education program called Health Class 2.0. 
Fit Nation is actually her second book. She's also the author of Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture. She lives it with her husband and two children in New York, and she's currently training for a half marathon. So welcome, Natalia. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> this is going to be really fun because honestly, like this book, really spoke to me. I should say, I preface, I used to be the fitness assistant at Self Magazine. Oh my gosh. In, in like 1995, 96, That was 97. the time to be it. It was like a big era in those yes. magazines. Yeah. So I, so just reading the names again and just, it, it just brought up a ton of memories. So that was really fun. But honestly, reading your intro where you talked about going to step class in your lime green umbros and your Grateful Dead <laughs> t-shirts. I mean, that could have been me, except for that I was probably wearing like a Madonna t-shirt. So tell us a little bit about your background in fitness and kind of how you landed in the space where you're writing this book. Yeah. So it's so funny. It goes all the way back to high school exactly at that moment. And so I was this kid who was not athletic at all. I was like very cerebral, very much in the books. And I was actually so intimidated by like anything physical, like going out for a sports team or a PE class or, you know, dance classes. That was all very intimidating. So much so that junior year of high school, I'm like, I cannot take it anymore. Like this humiliation <laughs> is too much. And I found out that you could do an independent study in phys ed and like the head of the PE department, this is a big public school, was like, what are you talking about? But I'm like, it's in the book. And so they said, you can either do personal training or group fitness. And my parents were like, personal training is something we heard about for rich people, but you could go take a group exercise class at our community center. And so I went into a step class, really not knowing what it was, but knowing it had to be better than like the humiliation of PE. And so I walked in there and I really found something that you know, I realized was like very physical, but different from sport and something that I really grew to love. And so that was sort of the beginning of this book that a long time later is finally out in the world. I love yes. it. I love it. So you've lived a lot of life since then. And you, totally. you'll probably talk about how you really got into fitness, but was there like a spark or perhaps sparks that ignited the flame for your research for Fit Nation? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a historian and my PhD is in history. I studied the modern US. And so I went to become a historian because like, I realized that the way that I see the world is very much looking around at like everything from politics to headlines to like the way we eat. And I'm always thinking like, how did we get here? Like, why is the world like this? What came before? And so by the time that I was a historian and, you know, in graduate school in my twenties, like I was already like a real kind of fitness addict, like, and not in a bad way, I should say a gym rat. I was like doing <laughs> my work and getting my PhD. But by then I had run a couple of marathons. I like would work the desk at the gym to get a free membership to take classes. I actually was certified to become a group fitness instructor. So I was spending a lot of time in these kind of physical culture environments. And I realized as a historian, like so much had been done around the history of sport, but fitness was not really something that too many people were writing about. And I'm like, whoa, this is a really powerful, fascinating and complicated world. What if I took my tools as a historian and kind of tried to understand it better? That's so cool. Well, and just talk a little bit because the, there was also one part where you talk about the the kind of the dichotomy between the brain and the body. Like, yeah, I, we know this isn't true, but like, 
you're either like a good athlete or you're really smart. Like you kind of get on one of those tracks, right? And we obviously are all complicated beings that have skills in both of those things, but you kind of hid your fitness background from your academic friends, right? Yeah, totally. So I definitely like had this idea that I think most people have gotten over, but academia definitely still hadn't at the time I was coming up in the early 2000s, but still now is like one of the last holdouts where there is this idea that mind and body are maybe disconnected. And that if you're somebody who spends too much time on the life of the body, well, you're probably not a serious thinker. It's probably a distraction from being a serious scholar. And so I was very bought into that dichotomy and I was in graduate school and, you know, like definitely by then I already kind of felt myself really a feminist and I almost felt bad that I loved this whole group fitness world so much because at that point, like, you know, I went there to these classes and I feel really empowered and strong and all these good things. But I was also like, I feel this way, but like what they're telling me is like, you know, lose weight by Memorial day. Or were you bad that you had a chocolate cake last night, work it off. And I was like, oh, that's like not great. And I also just felt that as a young scholar, that if people knew how much I cared about the gym, they'd like think that I was not serious or be like, well, why aren't you spending more time in the library? So that's something that even though the rest of the culture was like by then pretty much, I think bought into the idea that if you want to be a full person, mind and body are connected. Academia was kind of like a last holdout. Totally. So in Fit Nation, you follow the evolution of exercise in the U.S. for pretty much like the past century or actually more, which is just an incredible amount of content. (laughs) So give us a glimpse into your research and what you sifted through. Like, were you pulling out like your old VHS and like (laughs) popping in Richard Simmons? I mean, your old VCR. I I don't even know the terminology Uh, anymore, right? Oh, you better believe it. Yeah. (laughs) You better believe it. I mean, I tried to get my hands on any kind of source material that I could. And one of the things that was really kind of fun, but challenging, Challenging about this research is like, you know, when you study something which is kind of conventionally accepted as like historically legitimate, like there are archives that are organized that you can go to. If you study a war, or if I say I'm writing the history of like the Lyndon Baines Johnson administration, like he has papers in a library, mm-hmm. you go there. When you say I want to write the history of workout culture in America, like all bets are off because <laughs> a lot of people have not really thought this is worth documenting or studying. That is challenging, but it actually made it really fun because not only did I go and watch a ton of old VHS tapes, both in libraries, I don't have a VCR anymore, but there are actually a lot of like good YouTube and art and like old internet archives you can get into. I used that. I went in person to like something like the NIRSA archives, which was like the intramural and recreational sport association. I went to as many colleges as I could to figure out what like on-campus stuff looked like. I used a ton of old press sources, newspapers, magazines. There are all of these actually amazing individuals who have like kept basically blogs of like, like the gay gyms of Houston in the 1980s, like amazingly documented. And then there are all these people who just have a lot of stuff in their basement. And, you know, they (laughs) were, and that was so cool too, because, you know, I feel like because I was teaching fitness and I like, I think so clearly just like love this world that I was trying to document. I think people felt trusting of me because, you know, there are some examples of people writing about this topic and others. And I feel 
feel sometimes there's like a little bit of like a clinical detachment, like, oh, I'm the external scholar looking in. And where while like bias and trying to be as neutral and dispassionate as possible was important to me, I also think that a lot of the folks who I approached knew this is a world I care about depicting Mm -hmm. accurately. And so many people were very generous with their personal archives. So that's like a little bit of the archival story Um, in terms of going back so far. I mean, it's such a great question. You know, one of the hardest things historians deal with is like what we call periodization. Like, where do you begin and end your story? Yeah. For me, so this book basically starts in 1893 on the stage at the World's Fair with this strong man, Eugene Sandow, posing, and it ends now, like post-pandemic or late pandemic. And, you know, a lot of people who write about fitness, like go back to like the cavemen and we ran to like, you know, Mm -hmm. feed our families. And like, I think that is one really interesting way to do it. But I was interested in lived experience and in the United States. And it seemed to me that starting in the late 19th century around industrialization, when people started to really worry about like disciplining their bodies, um, that seemed to me to be the right point. I like throw it back to the 1840s and stuff a little bit, but I, um, but that felt like the right place to begin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we want to get into some of the specifics of your research that yeah. just blew, us, blew us away. Um, the first thing we want to dig into is the Presidential Council on Physical Fitness. Sure. Most listeners probably just shuddered as they remembered the shuttle run and the bent arm hang. I myself actually liked it. I mean, that was like the one thing I shined in because I couldn't do anything like ball sports. So I could do all the, the, <laughs> The run that was my yeah. favorite. So just tell us a little bit about the genesis of this test and what you found out in your research. And also, what it, what does it look like today? Maybe I should know with my kids, but I don't. Uh, no. Well, it's not in, in place in a lot of schools. My kids definitely didn't do this. And it's not as much of a focus, which we can get to in a second. But so here's the deal. So basically, in the first half of the 20th century, like regular exercise is kind of thought of as a little bit weird and definitely as a distraction from like more important pursuits kids should focus on in school. That mind-body disconnect was like alive and well. What happens after um, World War II in the Cold War is that you have suburbanization in the United States. States, if you can picture like the kind of romantic idea of what the 1950s looked like, at least for the white middle class people who could get out to those suburbs, um, that was supposed to be the picture of the good life, right? You have a car, you have a driveway, you have a TV, you have like a dishwasher, a washing machine. But there was this woman, Bonnie Pruden, who lived in a suburb of New York, and she'd been a super active kid. And she noticed that in her community, like all these kids were kind of out of shape and they weren't playing outside and they were watching TV. And um, she was less concerned about adults, but like their dads were sitting on the train and going to work and their moms weren't as active either. And she got really concerned about what this meant really is a national security risk, right? Because we're in the Cold War, like what's going to happen if young kids are not only not enjoying play, but also are not going to be you know, fit to fight if the Cold War gets hot. Of course, it's the military angle, which catches the attention of the White House. And President Eisenhower, who's a former general, realizes like, oh my gosh, this is a real problem. And so it really is a huge deal that Eisenhower appoints his committee. Nixon was the head of it, which is kind of funny to think of like Nixon as a fitness influencer, but okay. (laughs) Um, He appoints original, (laughs) right? The original (laughs) influencer, Richard Nixon. Um, He appoints this 
committee and the committee at first, it's like very much like physical fitness for the military. They meet at West Point, they meet at Annapolis and it's very much targeted to boys. It is a big deal because they're saying, you know, they go on this like marketing campaign basically to tell communities like you need to have PE in schools and to tell parents demand PE in schools. This is like good for citizenship. Notably, they never really fund it though. It's really like a marketing, like a sort of like promo promotional campaign, but it is a really big deal because before that working out had been seen as weird, definitely not something that would be a big focus of school. When JFK comes along, he's like the perfect poster boy for fitness, right? So he's young, he's attractive. He's always like sharing there all these photo shoots of him on the beach in Florida and in Cape Cod. Now we know that he struggled actually a lot with like very debilitating pain, but no one knew that at the time. So he actually changes the name of this presidential council under Eisenhower. It was the presidential council on youth fitness, and they were focusing on schools Kennedy is like, no, 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 drop the youth. This is for everybody. And he expands it to say, everybody should be exercising. And by the way, it's not just for military preparedness. Like this is fun. You should be going out, you know, with your family and enjoying and playing tennis and, you know, walking and doing all of these things and being active and kind of makes it a little bit more of a lifestyle thing and a fun thing. I think those two guys are really important because they do promote the idea that fitness is really good. It makes you a good citizen and it should be a priority. And then Kennedy is so important on top of Eisenhower because he's like, this isn't just about like being disciplined for the military. This is about like living a good life. And I think those are really, really foundational kind of to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. Well, and so speaking of presidents and you've already brought up Kennedy, can you tell us the story of the JFK 50 miler? Because I never knew it until I read it in your book. So I never knew it until I did this research, which is wild because I knew about the phys ed stuff, but you know, let me tell listeners. So basically JFK, part of this, like make fitness fun. He decided to challenge his brother, Robert F. Kennedy to do a 50 mile hike. Now he did this to kind of re-up something that Teddy Roosevelt had done earlier in the century. Teddy Roosevelt, he was like into fitness too, but he was very much like, he called it like rugged individualism. He was about Mm -hmm. like hunting and like, Mm -hmm. you know, being out in the outdoors and really only for boys. But anyway, JFK challenges RFK to do this 50 mile hike. It was an era without any real athletic clothes. So RFK, Bobby Kennedy is wearing like these loafers. It's a rainy day. They set out and they're like five or six of them. They have a dog with them too. It's kind of a media event and they're walking, walking, walking. And most of them drop off and only Bobby Kennedy finishes it. And he's like, I can't not, you know, I can't like not follow through on my brother's bet. And it's kind of this um, funny prank, but it sets off this almost viral trend. And there are people all over the place who are taking up this challenge to do this 50 mile hike or 50 mile walk. And there's still some places where it exists. I think I'm now forgetting it's in the book, but I think it's in Holland that there still is a 50 mile hike or walk, which is inspired by this. And what was really funny is you kind of see that, you know, he's kind of setting these fitness trends, like fitness can be fun and these group events can be really fun. You also see in that moment, like a lot of people push back on it. Like this is definitely a time when the idea that like the president should be promoting fitness is kind of controversial. Like it's a way to say uh, uh, opponents of Kennedy are like, oh, 
silly, superficial Kennedy. They call it his fits of fitness. Like this is irresponsible. Why is this guy so silly? Like why is a president focusing on this? And even some fitness enthusiasts are like, this is actually very dangerous. You need to start with like a very slow, you know, walking or jogging. You could die doing this. And so you Mm -hmm. kind of see at that moment, both like the seeds of where we are today. Like I could see that happening today and becoming Mm -hmm. something people do, right? Like we have ultra and all these things people do. But on the other hand, you see that at that time, it was still so weird to do that. It was controversial for a president to say it. And the exercise science, which wasn't even a field yet, is like, wait a minute, what? You could die doing that. And I think all of that is just so interesting in charting a very different time. Totally. Well, so I have never done the JFK 50 miler. Have you done that? No, I I didn't go that far in my research. It's kind of local to me and I haven't done it. I, but I know, I know a lot of people who have. Really? Yes. Yeah. Cause I'm from the DC area. So it's like in Virginia, that's not too far away from here. Oh, wow. I never knew the history. So that's, you know, the more you know, know. (laughs) we'll be right back after this break. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. Well, so along with your umbros, another image, actually, you have some great images in this book as well. Brought back some serious memories were the Nike ads from, I mean, I remember them so well from like Glamour Magazine and in Cosmo and those, I mean, you probably found them again, right? Yeah. Well, the ones that I saw that, the one that you captured was the highlight for the women's Aurora shoe from 1980. Mm-hmm. And, and the ads themselves, this one, maybe not as so much itself, but they took on political topics like voting rights and sexual assault and, you know, women running by themselves. I and mean, this was after Catherine Switzer had done the Boston Marathon. I mean, obviously it was, if it was 1980, but um, I'm just curious, like how revolutionary was that at the time? Those ads. Oh, it was such a big deal. Like, I think it's really easy to look back at those ads, which were kind of, you know, using the language of women's suffrage and even of like wife battery at the time. Mm-hmm. Like they're using all that language to sell sneakers. And I think from the 2023 perspective, it's like, oh my God, how cynical. Look at that branding. And I get that, but like, Come on, it was a huge deal. But prior to that, nobody thought that women's running or women's runners were a market worth pitching to. And so it really was a kind of revolutionary act, I think, you know, within capitalism for Nike to say, hey, women's running is a thing. We want to amplify that. And we are selling shoes, you know, to women who are a bigger and bigger part of running. And I think it's one of those, it's a little chicken and egg-ish, but I do believe that like advertising and imagery really matters. And so you could imagine having those ads 
it's gearing towards women who are already running, but then other women see those ads and they're like, oh, that's something I could do too. And so you kind of see what I think is a generally virtuous cycle there. But I think it's, it is really interesting to see the way they use that like very overtly political language to sell sneakers. It's it's yeah, for sure. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, and it was totally inspiring. I mean, again, like, I mean, when I saw that ad, I, it brought me back to, I think I ripped those ads out. Like I definitely like Mm -hmm. remember picking them up on my wall with like, you know, the hmm. pictures that have like, you know, Tom Selleck from like GQ covers, you know, <laughs> yeah. like just like, yeah. just, I mean, just random, yeah. you know, but it was really, I, they spoke to me, right. They spoke yeah. to a, a, a lot of people, you know, and that was very cool to see that again. I should say they weren't just like cute little wordplay. Like one that really sticks with me is one where, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the marathon or who's in the middle with the cops around her right now. She wins the marathon. She has a three-part name. Joan Benoit Samuelson. Joan Benoit Samuelson. Yeah, Yeah, sorry. I was like, okay, there's this picture of Joan Benoit Samuelson and she has like the foil, right, after the race and she's surrounded with three cops and the ad says something like, women runners need a little extra protection and they are talking about the shoes and like the cushioning in the shoes. But this is a time where if you look at the press and you you search up, you know, women's um, running, women's jogging, half the stories, if not more, are about assault on the road. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, and I think it's really interesting to see the way that women who were taking to the streets and running outside were really taking up space in a way that was considered dangerous and that really represented something new. So I think that can be, even though women are still so at risk in many ways in running in the street, I think that's like a really interesting thing to think about because it was, it was a bold, bold move. Mm-hmm. Was- I wonder if there were men behind the ad campaign or were there women? There were mostly men behind those ad campaigns. Mm -hmm. Like, so one of the things that, so first of all, the Nike archives were just so fascinating, such a repository. I feel so lucky to have been able to consult that like via Nike itself. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that becomes very clear is like, they did a really good job with those running ads in the very early 1980s. Part of the reason they did such a good job with it is because the women part was new, but like running was Nike's bread and butter, right? They Mm -hmm. knew how to talk to runners and that was like very much like their world. A really interesting thing that I talk about in the book that shows that, you know, they didn't exactly maybe have women in leadership who are making these calls is that what comes along in the 1980s, which is the aerobics fitness boom. And as the story goes, there were a bunch of sales reps who said to leadership, like, hey, there's this thing going on. Women all over the country are lining up to take these like dance aerobics classes and like we should be selling to them. And the male leadership at Nike was like, ah, no, like, I don't know Hmm. what that is. That is not sports. It's not athletics. I think the quote is something like, that's something like fat ladies dancing to music in California do. Like, that's not our jam. (laughs) And so they not only really miss it, but when they try to come in and actually capture that market after Reebok, after Avia, after some of these other brands, their messaging is like really kind of muddled. And that's apparently the moment that they're like, okay, we need to maybe expand our idea of what athleticism is and also have some women in these key leadership campaigns. And so then come, you know, some of the ads that I had in my locker in the 1990s, like if you let me play or, oh, yeah. um, you know, the objectify me ones. Mm-hmm. And those really were path breaking. I mean, I dare say, I still get a little chill and thinking of some of them because they really were, they really were inspiring. And I that's a real turn for Nike. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. For sure. Actually, you, got, you you totally got me, Natalia, because I was going to ask you about the Reebok shoe, the Freestyles aerobic shoe. I mean, those were amazing. You had to have, well, so how, can I ask how old you are? Yeah, I'm 44. 44. So was that past your prime? Like, did you own a pair of the Velcros? 
I was a little kid. So, but I remember my PE teacher in elementary school had them in like every color, Miss Gilbert. And I just thought that was so cool. And I had white ones and I had red ones. And at one point, I think I had like mint green because they were on sale. Oh, the mint green. Yes. My sister had the mint green and I just coveted them all the time. I went to little. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, and so validating that aerobics movement, I know I watched the 1984 LA Olympics, but I don't remember them, obviously, because I would have totally remembered the jazzercisers performing at the opening ceremonies, right? <laughs> yeah. So should I, do you want me to tell you about it a little? Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. It really was validation, wasn't it? it? Oh my gosh. So that was such a big deal. And funny story about that. I was at this dinner with my husband. It was like all these like sports guys around the table and they're like, let's play a game. Let's talk about what sporting event we would want to be in in history. And I'm like, not a huge sports fan. They're talking about like some NFL game, whatever. And I'm like, the 1984 Olympics at Jazzercise's opening ceremony. They're like, okay. <laughs> but um, anyway, so what happened? So Jazzercise, Jazzercise in the mid 80s is like the second biggest franchise in America after Domino's Pizza. So it is a big, big deal. And they get asked to do the opening ceremony at the Olympics. And they have, I think, about 300 Jazzercisers from all over the country that come. And it's the kind of thing that's such a big deal that in the local newspapers, I found these news items that are like, we sent two Jazzercisers from like Montana to Los Angeles to, to not compete. But it really was a big deal because you know, they're not competing in the Olympics, but at the premier global sports event to have this women's dance fitness program as like part of the pageantry was a really big deal. And it's interesting to hear the sports commentators talking and they kind of are like, wait, what is this? What's going on here? And so I think it is this moment where, you know, by then aerobics was a big deal. There are 22 million Americans who are doing aerobics by the mid 1980s, which is a lot, but to have that kind of presence outside of the studio, outside of the church basement or school gym where they're taking place on such a world stage, I think it really is a big deal. And as far as I know, no other fitness program has had an honor like that since. So, you know, still stands as a first. That's very cool. So speaking of aerobics and mainstream, tell us the story about Jane Fonda and how she became synonymous with fitness. Because from what you write, it sounds like she wanted to make money from her husband's nonprofit and then somehow she stole the exercise from it from the woman who taught her. Is that correct? Um, I don't know. That is a little uncharitable. I think. But um, yes, it <laughs> is. It is more than she just loved to work out. So basically, Jane Fonda was already a movie star in the 1970s, and she had an injury. And I believe her mother-in-law told her to go try this aerobics uh, studio. And so she went to a place called Body Design by Gilda, and Gilda Marks was the woman who owned it, who's kind of a legend in the aerobics world. And she kind of fell in love with it. She fell in love, in particular, with an instructor named Lenny. Kasdan. And this was a place like everybody went there. Barbara Streisand went there. Richard Simmons actually went there and then wasn't welcome back because he was a man and so started his own thing. But this was like the spot, Shirley MacLaine. And so Jane Fonda, who had struggled with eating disorders her whole life, really realized like, oh my gosh, I love exercising and it's a much healthier way for me to connect to my body than anything I'd ever done before. And also being in that community of women as she was kind of coming out as a feminist was a really important thing for her. So she goes off with Lenny Kasdan actually and starts the workout studio. Now at the time, she's married to Tom Hayden, the left-wing activist. And the reason that they started the studio was actually to fund the Campaign for Economic Democracy, which was his nonprofit. And so she's 
has this workout studio in LA and she's kind of sending money into his program. And it's, so it's very popular in Los Angeles and opens a couple other studios. The thing that really makes it blow up, Jane Fonda as a workout person, but also like the dance aerobics phenomenon is VHS. We were talking about at the mm-hmm. top of the hour. So she gets approached by the husband of a woman who takes her class. And he's like, I'm in this new thing called VHS. Do you want to make a workout video? And <laughs> she is very skeptical. I believe this is like the late seventies. She's like, I don't own a VCR. No one I know owns a VCR. Like who would buy this? And then also, and I think this is so interesting in terms of how we think about celebrities and how they work out. She's also like, you know, thinking sort of, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm movie star. Like, I don't want to be like sweating in front of all these Mm -hmm. people. Like, this is not what I do. And she's actually kind of nervous to do it. Anyway, she comes around, she makes the VHS tape. It is such a hit that everyone and their mother wants to make a VHS tape after. But I think she's so important because now you don't have to go find a class. Like you can, you don't have to tune in to the show that's on TV. You can actually have this tape in your hand. You exercise anytime you want and kind of have it in your living room and have Jane in your living room. And with her husband, what's interesting is she eventually cuts him off because even though his nonprofit is making money hand over fist from this like workout thing. He's very dismissive of it. He's like, oh, your little exercise thing. Like doesn't think that it's real activism. And finally she's like, enough, dude. Like I've given you enough (laughs) money. But to me, that's also really interesting because that's such a theme in kind of women's fitness of like it being disparaged. It's like, oh, this like little exercise thing. That's not real sports. That's not real community. It's just this little place women go to do something silly and work on their bodies. And one contribution I hope this book makes is to be like, no, it's so much more than that. And I think she's a good example of it. A hundred percent. That's what I was with Sarah and I were talking before you came on Natalia. And I'm like, this is so validating because sometimes it feels like it's a hobby, right? Or like mm-hmm. something that's not contributing to the culture or contributing anything besides, you know, getting thinner thighs or better butt, right. you know, quoting from right. myself days, you know, but it's yeah. like, no, there actually is a whole bunch of really important things happening that mirror the society. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. You've done a great job telling these stories. You do a great job in the book telling the stories. I can't recommend it enough. You describe every personality and trend from Jack LaLanne and his trimnastics to the opening of Equinox in New York City. I had no idea that was opened by hotel people, which speaks a lot about the flavor that you get when you go into an Equinox mm-hmm. to the genesis of like CrossFit as the anti-gym. That was super interesting as well. I'm curious, is there anything else that sticks out to you or one of the stories that you like to tell or something that sticks out in your mind that you like to share? <laughs> yeah. You know what I think is really interesting that like is sometimes a little bit in the dustbin of history is this woman, Debbie Drake. So Debbie Drake was a 1960s TV personality who had a workout TV show. And she, if you hear about her today, aside from reading my book, you often hear about her like, cause she's really mocked because she had this album that was called literally how to keep your husband happy. And like the cover <laughs> of it has this guy chilling out and he has a thought bubble and it's Debbie Drake and her cute little leotard doing all these different exercises. And it's like, oh my God, how like backwards that all was. And yes, it was very backwards. One of the things that's super interesting though, in looking at the way she marketed exercise is her whole play was like, hey, moms, hey, wives, just because you're 30, perish the thought, or 40, (laughs) doesn't mean you have to be like washed up and unattractive. And she would pitch herself the line that is often quoted is for the missus who still wants to be whistlebait. So the idea that like, you know, 
the presumption is once you had babies or were married, you were no longer sexy. And she's like, no, 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 you can be like, just do my exercise. And I think it's true to kind of critique that because so much of that, it's just about like more pressures to be like desirable to men. But I also think like, let's think about like the reaction to say like Shakira and JLo on stage at the Super Bowl who are like 50 years old. And I think a lot of people are like, wow, how awesome that women in their fifties are still shaking it and all that and, and attractive. And I do think Debbie Drake planted this seed of like what I call the hot wife archetype, which has real problems because it creates these pressures. You still have to keep working on yourself. But I also think it's not terrible that women after having babies and like being married should be able to feel like, yeah, I can still be sexy. Like I can still kind of do that. Although I like to think of it, do it for yourself rather Mm -hmm. than just to get be whistle bait, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. New, and, goals, and last, new goals. <laughs> last thing I'll say about Debbie Drake, I actually tried to find her and it's so weird. She was a, she was on TV for a very long time. And then once the 80s happens, she kind of fades out of the picture completely. She's still well-known enough. She has a really bad car accident in the mid-1980s. The LA Times reports on the fact that she has surgery, she's going to get better, and then literally cannot find her anywhere. Oh so if, huh. yeah, like no, she was inducted into the Fitness Hall of Fame in 2015. So I'm like, oh my God, I found her. But they're like, no, 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 we did that like as a legacy induction. No one could track her down. So if anyone out there knows where Debbie Drake is, I'd love oh. to talk to her. Oh, wow. Right. How did how did you hear about her in the first place? Had she come across your radar earlier or? You know, this, okay, this is a little lens into my obsessive brain and the kind of research <laughs> that I did. I would look at TV listings to see what exercise shows would be t- on because I wanted oh. to find out. Like everybody has heard of Jack LaLanne. And of course I talk about him in the 1950s, but I'm like, who else was on? And so I started to see like exercise with Jeb- with Debbie Drake showing up on guides. And so I would just look it up and then I, you know, got that into the rabbit wow. hole. I love that. I love yeah. that. I cover so much when you do deep dives into research. Exactly. So switch gears a little bit. Throughout the book, there's a tension between exercise as a form of bodily and individual transformation in an American society that doesn't make exercise available to all shapes, sizes, socioeconomic groups. We as a society agree on the value of exercise, you write, but you can't out-exercise a broken system. Um, So can you talk a little bit more about that? For sure. Um, It's always funny when people quote me back to me. I'm like, oh, I did say that. Um, Yeah. So what I mean to say by that is like, you know, we tend to talk about exercise purely in individualistic terms. Like, are you motivated enough to take care of your body and go get fit or not? And then we often make a whole series of judgments based on the answer to that question. What I am trying to do with this book is to show the process by which we've come to think as a culture of exercise as a good thing and something everyone should do, but we've stopped short of really enabling access to exercise in any kind of egalitarian way. And so, you know, we've been talking, um, we've actually, in this interview, we've really been talking about both things, both like that, you know, kind of halfway public promise to things like physical education at the same time as you have an industry, which is like hardcore promoting, you need to buy this to exercise, to be a better person, prettier, more attractive, healthier, live a longer life. And so a lot of the story that I tell here is how, you know, the federal government was really important in kind of promoting the idea that fitness is good and fitness is good for you and kind of got started with those PE programs, but has stopped so far short of actually creating policies that would mean that people have 
access to well-lit streets or green spaces or playgrounds or housing that's close enough to where they work so they have time to exercise in the day. And so part of what I'm trying to do here is, you know, talk about how this individualistic ethos of edge of uh, exercise came to be, but also show how there are all these like contextual factors that exist that are more structural that affect whether or not people can fully participate in what I call the fit nation. Yeah. Well, and so many of us are moms who listen to this podcast and most everyone who's listening intimately knows the value of exercise, you know, for them, individual basis, our body, our minds, our spirits, everything benefits from it. So what suggestions do you have for making sure it's a more equitable resource in our areas? You know, to me, it feels like a huge problem to tackle, Mm -hmm. but it's an important one, right? Obviously close to our, you know, so if you want to talk a little bit too about your, uh, is it called health sense? I think was that what health class 2.0. Yeah. yeah Sadly not I'm around sorry. anymore, but yeah, I can talk about oh, that. Okay. Sure. Yeah. No. Um, okay. So what can we do? So the first thing it can be really, I think, overwhelming to think about education to think, I keep saying education. It can be really overwhelming to think about exercise as a kind of structural issue because it's like, come on, it's hard enough to get myself to go to the gym. How am I supposed to enable that access for others? But I think the first thing to do is to kind of check our ourselves when we start feeling judgmental about people who don't exercise because there's so much messaging in our culture that is very, I think, victim blaming that like if you see someone who doesn't make time for exercise or looks like they don't make time for exercise, there's a real knee-jerk reaction to be like, oh, they don't care about their health or they don't value their health or they're lazy. And so I think listening to yourself and not thinking and resisting it is the first step. Then I think we really need policies which promote really robust physical education in schools, which is cut left and right. Like that is something that as school budgets are getting cut is constantly seen as like just a frill and like not that important. And in advocating for PE to be a more robust part of the curriculum, also taking a look in your local community at like, what is that physical education? Because you know, that presidential fitness test that you loved, Sarah, like a lot of people (laughs) were like, I'm so traumatized by that, you know? And I actually think like, PE is the place where most Americans are first going to encounter exercise. And sadly, a lot of people are turned off by that experience. And so what would it mean if some of actually the awesome things that are happening in the industry where there's like something kind of for everybody, what would it mean to have those kind of partnerships where there's actually great stuff where kids can feel like what it feels like to exercise on their own terms, where exercise isn't punishment. Like you're talking, go run three laps or do 10 pushups, but it's actually something joyous. So I think PE is a big thing. I also think policies that advocate for more recreational space, you know, in, in towns, And then things that maybe don't seem to have anything to do with fitness, but as runners, you know, well-lit streets, well-paved streets, you know what I mean? Running trails, all of that I think is really important. And then I think sadly, because we don't have that robust of a policy framework around that, we do have that uh, something that's emerged kind of in its place, which are tons of really good nonprofits that are doing really great work. And so I think supporting those, I mean, every they, these tend to be pretty local, but like here, there's one called Black Girls Run. Um, there's, uh, you know, something that I was on the board of called I Try Girls, which is about triathlons. It's mostly mm-hmm. Latina girls. Like, I mean, find out what the organizations are that are, you know, not solving the big structural program, but doing what they can to get people who might not have access to the gym or, you know, other programs to get them excited about exercising on their own terms. I think that is really exciting. 
I love all those suggestions and going back to the idea of making PE a more diverse curriculum. I mean, I think in your interview with Anne Helen Peterson, you talked about how the mostly women and, and gay men feel like PE is like, they feel outcast there, right? Mm-hmm. You were, you were like, okay, I'm going to my step class. I'm doing this, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so you find a space that you, you know, that you, a community that works for you, right? Whether it's, you know, the gay gyms in Houston, as you were talking about, or mm-hmm. jazzercise or whatever. And that is such, I mean, as we all know, it's such a validating and fulfilling and accepting feeling like you just, it's, it lights you up. Right. And so to, I love that idea of like saying, okay, we're going to do a step class in gym, or we're going to do, yeah. you know, I don't know what, I mean, anything that's not anything. just dodgeball, right? <laughs> right. I think that's so important. And and that uh, like, it seems so simple, but sadly that involves like so much thinking because, you know, I used to be a classroom teacher. And like I said, I was totally bought into that idea that the life of the mind is superior to the life of the body. And sadly that like hierarchy happens, like plays out again and again, like in schools of education. I talked to someone who's a big leader in the phys ed space and she's like, you know, my like young PE teachers are in ed school and they ask questions like, how does this history of education like apply to the work I'm going to do in PE? And they're professors who are like, oh, whatever, it doesn't really apply to you. Like, and I think Mm -hmm. that is a huge problem. Like if we see phys ed as the like redheaded orphan stepchild, whatever of the curriculum, guess what? Kids are going to treat it like that too. And so are taxpayers. And so to me, that's a really important shift to make. I like it. it. Yeah. All right. Totally shifting. We just got to know how your half marathon training is going because we know you are on a promotional tour and doing a ton for the book. So are you able to get in some runs and and what race are you doing? Okay. So I am doing the Brooklyn half marathon, not the traditional one, but the NYC runs one, um, which Mm -hmm. is like a different route, which I did last year. And I've done the other one a, a few times too. Training officially starts Monday, so I don't know. Oh, okay. right. <laughs> but I've been trying to, I've been trying to like, you know, build my strength. And then what's interesting to me is so I've run three full marathons, I don't know, maybe like four or five half marathons in my life. And at this age, like my PR marathon came when I was 40 years old, which I'm like so excited after having kids. But my problem now is not the discipline or even the cardio. It's like the pain in my feet, you know? So I'm like working around mm-hmm. that mechanical stuff. So any tips you have on that are much <laughs> Well, that, that's what brought Jane Fonda into the studio. So maybe you need right. you know, to do a little bit more, maybe a little bit more uh, strength training. I'm sure you don't need that, but yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Good shoes, always good, you know, make yep. sure you have the properly fitting shoes. And we actually did a podcast with um, another author who is all about the feet. Oh, who is that? I got to read the book. Eric Orton. He co-wrote Born to Run 2. Oh, cool. He believes everything starts with the strong foot. And if you have a strong foot, then the rest of your body will follow suit and you'll avoid injuries. I'll listen to the episode. In the book, he has exercises for feet strengthening. So it's something you might want to check out. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, of course. Thanks for your wonderful insight. I just feel like you're such a library of information. It's amazing what you can store in your brain. And it's also fascinating. So it sounds like you're just, yeah, you're very passionate about this topic. I definitely am. Yeah. And I think everybody will enjoy hearing all these wonderful stories that you shared. So thank you so much. Such an honor to be on here. Thank you so much. Take care, Natalia. Good luck with everything. Okay. Bye. We just wanted to let you know that our next round of Simply Nourish Like a Mother starts on February 20th. This eight-week course will change how you think about food, how you eat your food. You're still going to chew it, of course, but your relationship with food in a very grounding, 
fulfilling, sustainable way. I've sat next to Ellie Kempton for, gosh, six years doing this. We're going to have a podcast with her next week or in two weeks, actually, to talk a little bit more about food and our relationship to foods. But just wanted to let you know that if you are interested in joining us, head to anothermotherrunner.com and look under nutrition in the drop-down menu on training, and we would love to have you join us. Our podcast today was produced by Barry Medore of Fire on the Bluff in St. Paul, Minnesota. <laughs>